Hello all, welcome to the season finale of the Influx podcast. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the law and policy behind digital ID. The episode before this dealt with the design around digital ID and this and this episode we'll be discussing more on the law, law and policy. and the regulatory system behind digital id in this episode we have shruti and yesha who work on the digital id project over to shruti and yesha um hi i'm shruti i've been working uh, with cis and in the digital id project for a year and a half now um i'm a lawyer by training just graduated from law school and uh, yeah we've basically been focusing on the legal and regulatory aspects of this project while we have our colleagues who are looking at the technological and design and other parts of the project uh hi i'm yasha i have also been working with the digital id team for about a year and a half now and i am also a lawyer and accompanying me in this episode is arindrajit who will also be discussing questions around digital id with yasha and shruti yes uh, this is uh, as shweta mentioned this is the last episode of the season so really excited to be talking to uh, two people who have been doing really i mean interesting and exciting work at cis which has been uh, recognized all around the globe and this is not a catchphrase but it's literally been recognized all around the globe and we hope that we discuss that over the course of this episode so on to the i mean the first question that we had planned and it's fairly basic but uh, for an outsider uh, i mean we keep on hearing the word digital id all the time um, in mm-hmm. in several contexts so what uh, i think we want to understand first is what exactly is Uh, a digital identity and why is it become so popular across uh, countries uh, governments are implementing i mean some version of digital id the world bank has uh, put its uh, intellectual force behind digital id so what but before we get into that what exactly is digital id and why why is it become so popular right um, so digital ids actually have a quite a broad meaning and in fact really broad applications and uh, one of the first few things we did in this project was to come up with a definition that we would be applying across the board for what a digital id is and uh, basically if like to explain it briefly it we would say it's a on like a digital representation of an id holder's legal identity which can be used to assert the identity of the holder electronically uh, in whatever setting so this well like it since it does involve a wide range of things this could include say a google id that you might have or a facebook id as well as a national id card such as aadhaar it basically um, again how we define it is that three key parts of the identity system are done online so these three parts are identification authentication and authorization so uh, basically identification is the process of establishing the digital identity of an individual by like in in national settings that would involve say checking uh, identity proofs of a person other testaments etc and also giving id holders a sort of credential that they can use subsequently to prove their identity so this is the process of identification the process of authorization is subsequently using this credential that you might have to assert your identity during a process that needs you to assert an identity and lastly the process of authorization which is in fact key to this process is that 
you allow like the user allows uh, the system to determine what actions can be performed on their behalf it basically means that you allow when you are online you allow the system that you are accessing to to do stuff on your behalf and so when these three key aspects are conducted digitally we call it a digital identity so it's basically a representation digitally of a legal identity which is really useful in accessing goods services etc digitally or electronically so we do have a glossary of terms on our website which defines it so much better than i just did and it has everything that you would need to understand things in this uh, in this field and particularly in our project and we have limited the scope of digital identities to foundational and functional digital ids implemented by the governments this means that uh, we're not we're not at all talking about things like google facebook instagram etc we're just talking about id schemes that are implemented by the government for either core identities such as a, a national identity card like aadhar or functional identities for particular sectors like a digital health id etc um so i mean regarding your question about why there suddenly seems to be this huge push for digital id by governments across the world so i mean it's honestly the push for digital id has been going on for a couple of decades now but in the last couple of years especially um the stated goal for digital id systems essentially is that i mean there's even a un um, sustainable development goal 16.9 which basically says that um, we should aim to provide legal identity to all people worldwide like including birth registration by 2030 so i mean an issue that we're seeing especially in the global south is that there are millions of people without any form of even basic identity so i mean the basic purpose of a digital identity sort of seeks to um, provide some form of basic legal identification to every person on the planet um so some other goals that we've seen with the digital id systems that we've um been studying is that um some of the other goals are to access social benefits and programs to tackle issues with uh, corruption and leakages when it comes to um, providing benefits to increase access to maybe financial services health services any uh, government services or private services for that matter to people and communities which may otherwise um, traditionally be underserved um and this is why we've seen a push for digital identity particularly right now in the global south and um, countries in africa for example and one th- one interesting trend that we sort of came across in this um respect is when we're looking at the sort of stated goals for digital id systems because there are also many digital id systems being um implemented in countries in europe and across southeast asia and the americas as well is the fact that they have very different goals so for example um in the global north um some goals would be increasing greater access to services more um, efficiency in providing these services basically removing friction and sort of smoother governance whereas in the south um, digital id is sort of meant to tackle very basic and fundamental questions such as just providing legal identification to many people who don't have it access to just basic services and entitlements and things like fraud and corruption i mean also i mean another very recent development that seems to have been sort of spurring the um, push of digital ids now is obviously um, the covid-19 pandemic so we've seen a lot of countries that um, previously were sort of um, thinking uh, or in the process of implementing digital ids and that process has really been um, speeded up because of the pandemic because they've realized that in order to um, provide healthcare services or financial like benefits and anything like that to their populations that you need some form of digital identity an example of this for example is samoa which has been looking at implementing a digital id for a number of years 
But now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, it has really fast-tracked its digital ID program and it's actively sort of registering um, users to the program purely because of the pandemic. Definitely, we should check out the website, but I thought that was a very useful uh, introduction to uh, digital ID. And also, I mean, that trend is is interesting to note. Uh, I think that, I mean, we often say that a number of countries and organizations, and I mentioned the World Bank, are pushing for uh, ID, digital ID. But uh, I mean, the question of why they are pushing for it and the economic and political circumstances behind mm-hmm. it was, was very interesting to note. Talking about the involvement of the World Bank, Um, We see that it's been at the forefront of this push for digital ID and it's even at this point in time seeking to frame principles around identification for sustainable development. And uh, in this context, it's important to keep in mind the private interest in play here as well. So, I mean, obviously the stated goal for digital ID systems obviously is in most cases is to provide legal identification. But we also see so many private actors involved in the digital ID ecosystem. And so there are obviously so many other factors for pushing digital ID by the private sector as well, such as ease of doing business, expanding consumer base, under the guise of providing identity for all. And I mean, as well as obviously the vast amounts of user data that any digital ID will generate. The point, I think the broad point that you were trying to make is that it's not just, I mean, while perhaps I was wrong in the phrasing of the question as well, it's not just governments that are interested in the creation of digital ideas, it's also a number of different actors. And I mean, we don't know, of course, we, we assume that the World Bank at the end of the day represents the interests of, of the people. So, um, uh, well, but of course, there are obviously other interests at, at play. So, yeah. Uh, they're very, very interesting. Yes, uh, I think it's really nice insights around digital ID and how different countries look at it, what the need of the digital ID, what, why they think digital ID is important. I think another question that I have related to this is about the, while studying the digital IDs of different countries, uh, do you have any idea, insights about the history or impact of any of these projects? Maybe these might not be of, either these could be of countries that have started it way long ago or countries that are actually just starting with it or have just started it for some time and have some insights or stories about those countries and how it has benefited or not. Uh, sure. Um, perhaps the most talked about country when it comes to digital ID and also like the country that implemented it, one of one of the earliest countries to implement it uh, was Estonia. And that is actually a really good example of a digital ID system. So one really important characteristic of it is that it is its design is quite different from the ID systems that we know of today. So the Estonian system is really like it does it's not as centralized as we know India's system is. It has a couple of different rather uh, several many different uh, databases of different informations that are connected to each other via a system called XROAD which allows uh, each database to ask the other database for data without really without really going through the ID holder themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, this this differs a lot from India, where we have one key database that stores all of our information. And a really, uh, I'd say, interesting fact about how or why the Estonian system started, which differs so much from what we know the Indian system or other similar systems to have begun, is that in Estonia, they were looking for a way to make digital signatures easier because a big goal of Estonia, especially when it just gained independence from the Soviet Union, was to conduct business with other European countries and to have sort of ease of business across Europe. And uh, what they really wanted was digital signatures to be considered in the same way that regular signatures are. 
and so the very first part of this um, Estonian ID system was system was in fact the Digital Signatures Act, and they realized that to have this ease of digital signatures across business, they would need a sort of ID system that backs it to make sure that it's all authentic and it's trusted, etc. Which is why the EID system began, which is now sort of made its way to almost every other part of Estonia. Now the EID is so popular that it's used for voting. It's used for practically everything. It's used in schools. It's uh, it has almost replaced every other form of ID, but it originated as a goal for ease of business and for digital signatures. This we would say differs a lot from the systems we know of in India or Kenya or Mauritius, which are all which were all in the limelight recently for uh, litigation that started against the ID systems. Where most of these goals, at least as we know from the court cases itself were that of national security and to identify fraud and corruption, etc. So those were the goals to implement an ID system in these countries, uh, whereas in Estonia it was clearly just ease of business, which has now become everything else. And we also see like a huge difference in how they were implemented in that in Estonia, it kind of happened immediately and very smoothly, as opposed to all of the countries I spoke of, which are Kenya, Mauritius and India, where there was almost immediate pushback. There was heavy litigation. And even right now, uh, while in India, it's still going on. But in Kenya and Mauritius, both of their ID systems have been stalled for the time being by their courts because of concerns they had. So I think uh, there's a huge difference in a sort of trust factor in these countries between the states and uh, the, between the governments and the citizens. Because Estonia, I mean, we, we didn't really come across a lot of negative feedback despite how extremely pervasive the system is. Whereas in all these other countries, there was so much about how many concerns there were with it. So um, I think another interesting case study is the United Kingdom. So this is not um, the first attempt that the UK has uh, made to try and sort of uh, implement a digital ID system. So I think about a decade ago, it uh, tried to implement a national biometric database. And that was extremely invasive in that it not only collected your biometrics, but it, I think it, it collected almost like 50 different categories of information. And the stated goal at the time was to um, sort of prevent terrorists from creating false IDs. So obviously there was a lot of pushback and I think there was an election and after that they just sort of um, rolled back the entire um, scheme. So now what the, the, the digital ID system in the UK is basically, it's called Verify. And it's quite interesting in that usually in the digital ID systems, in the national digital ID systems that we've seen in other countries, the process of identification is usually carried out by governments. But here in the, um, in the UK, um, the process of identification is basically outsourced to um, designated private sector entities. So I think when it started out, it was about five. I think at this point, it's about two or three. And it is these private sector entities who verify um, residents and um, identities by checking against like public and private records. Um, another interesting factor is that um, usually there's one standard that you have to meet in order to uh, get identification. Mm -hmm. However, um, with Verify, they have varying degrees of uh, documentation required in order to access different services. So this is basically, I think, their attempt to try and be as inclusive as possible. Because obviously, like not everyone will have all the documentation required to, you know, um, get an ID. Usually, like, and this is um, an issue that we found in other countries as well, where there are a lot of exclusions just because we don't have basic documentation. But the UK has sort of tried to bypass that by saying that, for example, to access X service, 
you just need maybe two, three documents that sort of everyone would have. It's also interesting that basically it's a sort of federated system, which is basically um, here it's federated because residents can choose between a range of commercial identity providers dependent on the documentation that they have and the documentation that's available. And also, I mean, it's taken certain steps to maintain user privacy in that um, the government service that you're trying to access um, does not know which identity provider that you've used. That another reason the UK is different from the previous countries that uh, we talked about is that it also, it's a lot more private in that it also allows some identity verification to be done by means that are not government IDs. So in Estonia, Kenya, Mauritius, India, everything that is being, I mean, uh, where the governments are conducting the identification process and verifying the identities, they primarily rely on government IDs, at, like as you would expect. But the UK sort of tried to implement a system where it has the option of government IDs, but it also uses mobile phone IDs and other telecom operators, etc. as a way to show that if people don't have government IDs, they can still use this digital ID as long as it meets certain assurance levels, which uh, does make it a lot more inclusive and a lot uh, sort, of, sort of catering to different populations, which is really great. Uh, the one question I had was, uh, so while looking at all the other digital IDs, are they always restricted to only citizens or are there some IDs that you can get even though you're not a citizen? ID systems that we've looked at have residents as the criteria. There are a couple, like Mauritius, for example, that has citizens, but most of them have residents. And um, Estonia goes beyond and allows mm. e-residents uh, with a category they have uh, sort of come up with to encourage investment into the country and to have more ease of business, where people who are not residents, not citizens, can uh, also apply for and get these IDs if they meet certain criteria, if they want to basically conduct business in Estonia. Right, I think Estonia was, came into the news, especially Estonia's digital ID came to news because of this thing where you could be a citizen without a resident, without being a resident. And yeah, also Mukesh Amani is an e-resident yeah. of Estonia. Uh, also, I think one interesting, I mean, another thing that we sort of found is that usually when these national ID systems are sort of rolled out in every country, there's always a lot of pushback. And I mean, and justifiably so, you know, like from a privacy perspective or whatever it is. But I think Estonia, at least from our research and when we talk to people, it's sort of, um, there seem to be no criticism at all. And um, I, the residents and the citizens seem to have absolute faith in their government to, you know, use the ID. It, like, they trust their, com their government completely with their data. Yeah, in fact, when we were uh, researching for Estonia, we also happened to talk to a few people that were experts in the Estonian ID system. And they were very surprised that we uh, had a problem with the fact that the Estonian system doesn't require consent from ID holders when they're sharing the data. And basically in our conversation, they were of the opinion that consent is just not important in the system, which uh, we found quite, quite interesting. But it seemed to be a trend in Estonian citizens and residents. They apparently have that much trust in the government that they don't find the need for consent and they they prefer or prioritize convenience and ease above um, consent. That's, that's really interesting to know, especially if we'd be also discussing more about privacy and data protection around digital ID. Another question I had was, uh, while looking at the digital ID of different countries, did you find that population, the population of a country made it easier or difficult to implement a digital ID? Like compared to India, which had like a lot of people, but maybe Estonia is a smaller country. Something like any insights like that? Uh, Perhaps in that it would be a lot more cost effective 
to cater to a, a far smaller population as against a population such as India. And also, I mean, you can see in digital ID that it's one of those um, systems where it benefits a lot if there are a lot more people on it. People are unlikely to, especially if it's ease of doing business, right? Like people are unlikely to choose, say, a digital ID for a digital signature if it's not being used widely. So if in, in populations where such a culture was there, it's like more people have got on the digital ID bandwagon, it was automatically easier to get more people on it. Uh, but in terms of uh, in terms of population, the most obvious one would be that it's easier when it's smaller, only because it's more cost effective, and you can have like so much depends on cost. What kind of authentication features you have, whether you have smart IDs, whether you have private players or public players in the ID system itself. Also, because I mean, there is a commercial aspect to this. It's a really expensive endeavor, so a lot would depend on how expensive it is. And therefore, to that extent, for sure, a lot would be influenced by how big the population is. I think what also um, plays a role is um, the access that certain sections of these populations have to basic infrastructure when it comes to implementing a digital ID. Um, so I think for a country like Estonia, which was anyway a small and fairly homogenous, um, I mean, culturally, versus a country like India, um, implementing a digital ID is going to be very different in those two countries. So, like, um, that's the thing, because in a country like India, for example, you have millions who don't have access to basic internet or basic, like, network or technology. So those are the factors that sort of go into the decision-making behind a digital ID and can make it a lot more difficult to implement it. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to pose, see what uh, Mukesh Ambani, the citizen of Estonia, thinks about the Estonia's e data protection practices. E resident of Estonia. The e resident, sorry, yes, the e resident yeah. of Estonia, my bad, yes. Um, thinks about Estonia's data protection uh, framework. But I'll come. we'll come to that and a little bit more about the regulatory framework in a bit. But just to take a step back and make it much more uh, specific to uh, the project that the two of you have been a part of. So um, when you all started off and you all were, of course, uh, you were there when the project started, what was it that you were trying to accomplish, right? Like it is an interdisciplinary project. We've heard from some of the others who uh, have worked on the project, uh, design technologists. So, and it's also different, I think, from uh, a number of other projects at CIS where essentially we just... Uh, write stuff and, and get it reviewed and put it out. I, I, I'm, I've always been intrigued sort of as a as a partial outsider to understand uh, more closely how this project was conceptualized and how exactly you all work and what exactly is it that you'll seek to accomplish. So yeah, um, if you could share some insights on that, that would be great. Uh, yeah, so um, I think starting out, I think ultimately I think the, the goal of this um, project is to answer two fundamental questions is one is when should digital identity be used and also um, how its technological and policy design can be determined. So basically what, what we are trying to do is sort of to provide a comprehensive look at ID programs from every perspective, which is why we have such an interdisciplinary team and which is why we work. I mean, for example, Shruti and I are lawyers, but we also, for example, we um, started with design thinking as the foundation of sort of how we approach this project. And then as lawyers, for example, we look at this, um, we look at digital ID systems and evaluating digital ID systems from a legal and regulatory perspective. Um, then, I mean, we also have an engineer on our team who is currently looking at the various technologies deployed in identity systems. 
So what we're sort of trying to provide is a very holistic sort of view at digital ID systems all over the world and a sort of um, through our evaluation framework, for example, and a way to analyze all of these digital ID systems. And I think our, um, our sort of ultimate goal is to provide a sort of decision guide where we outline the options, all of the possible options that can be available to policymakers um, to sort of take into consideration at every stage of implementing a digital ID program. Uh, I think the biggest, at least for us, the biggest multidisciplinary setting we're in right now is with the designers and with uh, employing the design thinking method, which, I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't fully understood. But um, how I look at it is that it, it's a sort of way to look at a system in its individual parts, as well as in in its entirety and how it functions with each other, which I think is really helpful, particularly for a digital ID system that is so, I mean, but for looking at a digital ID system that is so vast and has so many different components and so many different um, legal, even legal aspects to look at. So uh, one of the biggest things we've been doing is a mapping, which uh, I'm sure you have a better idea from our previous podcast, but it basically involves looking at uh, different digital ID programs as well as different sectors and just creating maps of exactly how they are used. And um, so I remember when we started this process, I was very confused about what the point of it was because the end product, which was the maps, to me was even more confusing than just reading, say, a piece of paper that says the same thing. Uh, so I was really confused about what the point of our mapping exercise was, which was a really comprehensive and like really time-consuming exercise. But then I realized that it it sort of helps in looking at the system comprehensively because how we would do it is basically we'd select a sector or an entire program and uh, the two of us, Yasha and me, would uh, start researching about exactly where the ID system is used, what kind of data it takes, etc, etc. And we would just have it like in a draft and then our designers would look at it and they would begin trying to map it out and in that process they'd realize all the connections and all the relationships that were missing. So then they'd sort of put about a hundred comments on our draft asking for like the really small things that we would never have realized if we were just reading it as like, you know, a report. And they would ask these questions and then we'd come back with those answers and we have a couple of phone calls to discuss exactly what is needed. And basically in this sort of iterative process, we'd eventually come up with a map that is comprehensive and that helps all of us involved in understanding exactly how the system works and exactly how feedback, um, sorry, how the data flows are and what kind of other flows are involved, what kind of, uh, what kind of players can access what kind of things. And it was a very, it was a way that at least I personally as a lawyer would never have realized was missing. Yeah, that, that sounds fascinating. And as I said, it's, it's definitely a, mode of work that all research as researchers we need to be doing but just a quick follow-up do you think that um this sort of interdisciplinary approach to id that we are adopting as researchers and of course we know that there has been as i said at the beginning of the episode also there are researchers in uh, other parts of the world who are also looking at digital id uh, possibly in a similar interdisciplinary fashion and actually have have uh, uh, looked at some of our work with appreciation but my question was the governments or the private actors that are 
invested in the creation of digital id and actually make most of the policy that set up these digital ids do you know if um any of them adopt a similar interdisciplinary approach or is it largely just the lawyers and the technologists who are who are creating this ids uh, do you, from your research do, do you know anything about how or uh, uh, the the process behind which digital ids were implemented and whether they had the similar holistic approach that that we have as researchers um i i can't say about india but i do know other countries that are a, a lot less centralized in how they're implementing digital id systems definitely have this holistic approach and a good example of that would be canada which is just just came out with a canadian trust framework which is basically uh, it's a very like not, not i wouldn't say very high level but it's sort of top down approach to regu- to just having a set of standards or a set of regulations for how id systems can function and then it basically allows private players and public players and everyone to interact and make id system a lot less centralized so in that aspect uh, the the policy makers i suppose who have made the trust framework itself are definitely in my opinion uh, employing a very holistic approach they have a lot of technologists on board they have lawyers and regulators i think um, what also differs from country to country is the level of civil society participation in the entire process um and i mean like like shruti said with the country like canada there's a lot more involvement i think with some other countries that we've seen um either there's no civil society participation at all and it's only after the um project has been implemented that you have pushed back from civil society in the form of litigation etc and then in some countries we see that there is the um sort of facade of consultation with civil society participants and um so civil society does participate in those cases but then nobody knows if those um inputs from civil society are actually taken to account in developing the digital id system or not uh, i see so uh, thanks i think that that's that's very interesting of course any any the robustness of any policy is obviously contingent on how much the government is willing to listen to its critics and and obviously that differs across countries but on that note i think this is a great segue to of course work that that shweta herself has been doing on on, on privacy and data protection for a few years and of course uh across countries i think there's been mis- mixed reception to issues of privacy and data protection but over to shweta for a more nuanced discussion on that thank you so much arindrajit Yes. Uh, so the question around privacy definitely we did speak about how in Estonia people did not the at least the government or the researchers did not have an issue with the uh, question about consent. But there are a lot of countries where there where there is still litigation going on. They are still questioning whether we should have a digital ID or not based on questions around privacy and data protection. Yes. Yeah, so how does the notion of a digital ID sit with uh, the principles of privacy? So not just I know that you are looking at digital ID through a not just through a legal technology policy perspective but also looking at the design behind the digital id and questions around how the technology is so but how do you look at digital id in terms of privacy in terms of questioning the uh, the balance between say welfare of the people and the privacy and data of the people yeah so there is definitely a big data protection question in this because i mean you could say the entire purpose of a digital id program is to sort of collect data and do something with it so data protection is a key factor in uh, in every part of implementing an identity system i would say like in a technological perspective in the um, regulatory perspective in a commercial perspective that would all play a part so for example you ideally would have the technology that in itself enables 
data protection so privacy by design uh, methods or and also you would have regulatory a regulatory scheme that would also protect data as well as when you're looking about looking at how it would function commercially you make sure that say they don't have too many private actors or they don't have private actors that are not regulated in ways that would eventually protect data so definitely data protection is a huge part of this uh, we know that digital id programs involve a lot of data collection in the initial stage of identification as well as the really important stage of every time the data, uh, the id is used fresh data is created and this data is stored and could be very easily used for surveillance purposes etc so there's definitely a big data protection question um as for whether it can be reconciled i think it can to the extent of meeting a good compromise because Um, at the end of the day, every policy would involve some sort of trade-off, and in this case, there is a trade-off to some extent of data protection or privacy for, you know, the goals of the ID system, which is maybe security or ease of business or convenience, etc. So there is a sort of compromise, and if you can meet the right compromise or the right trade-off, then uh, definitely can be reconciled. Uh, so yeah, but there are factors that play into these trade-offs, and some times that privacy must take the lead. So, for instance, a lot of national systems, national ID systems, tend to uh, take as much data as possible so that it can be repurposed for whatever new use the ID system may be put to, and this is done in the name of convenience, so that they don't have to take fresh data from citizens. Um, similarly, a lot of ID systems rely on biometrics or facial information for authentication without really exploring other options because these uh, features are considered most accurate, and they're also according to the policymakers are easiest for uh, citizens or users to access these are some places that privacy must be championed and maybe addressed in how an id system can sort of deliver the same goals or features without compromising on privacy because again these are very important parts of like data protection like these are really this is really sensitive data that must be protected and therefore these are things that must be accounted for in this trade off yes exactly another question i had like a follow up question was by looking at the digital ids did you uh, find which are the countries that have a digital id system already have a data protection or a privacy legislation in place or is is there any like difference between so the countries who already have the id system but also also have the privacy or data protection legislation in place yeah so uh, in our research most of the countries did already have a data protection law in place and some that didn't For example, Kenya didn't have a data protection law finalized when the ID system um, began. Uh, the courts quickly sort of decided to stall the program until an ID system, uh, sorry, until a data protection law was implemented. Um, and so, to that extent, most countries that we found, uh, sorry, that we analyzed, did have uh, a data protection law in place, and that does change so much in the ID system itself. Uh, for one, it would. it sort of takes care of a lot of the part that an the id system regulation would otherwise have to uh, sort of account for and perhaps most importantly the data protect or data protection authority which would usually be a part of any data protection law serves as a really good um, sort of balance and a check for the id system authority itself because we know that the authority of the id system which is tasked with administering the um, the id system itself and definitely has key responsibilities there still has there is still a risk of privacy or data protection involved with that authority and therefore 
the existence of a parallel data protection authority would help in sort of having that accountability which is something for example we are very much lacking in india where for so many reasons we i mean for so many effects of not having data protection law but most importantly there is no authority to check the uidai which has all the responsibilities involved with aadhar and therefore that that is genuinely a key failing in the indian id system according to us yeah i think um india was a very glaring example of pushing forward a digital id system in the absence of a data protection framework i think not only in the absence of a data protection framework but also just any sort of statutory legislation governing the digital id system itself so this is i think particularly um simply because we also see instances right now particularly with aadhar of mission creep which is a huge issue i think with a lot of digital id systems where you sort of even if you outline the purposes of the id a lot of times they're sort of quite broad and they could be interpreted quite liberally so i mean even in india for example aadhar you can't mandate the use of aadhar but we've seen for example with covid in delhi to uh, to access um, treatment for covid in delhi you needed to submit aadhar in in certain states for example in order to access so like social security pensions or maternity benefits even you need to submit your aadhar card so in the absence of any sort of legislation that effectively governs this you have no recourse in these cases frankly this also adds to the question around surveillance if the government has if the digital yeah. id is an all encompassing id with all the details about you about a person i uh, so any digital id system will obviously raise questions about government surveillance and i mean this arises especially because you're using a unique identifier across multiple services and just by every time you use a digital id uh, every time you use a digital id every time you authenticate yourself you are automatically creating a detailed record of all your activities all i mean all your movements even your affiliations any sort of sensitive data this allows you even to be uniquely identified across databases and not only is there a question of government surveillance but beyond this this very often creates a potential for private companies to access the sensitive data for surveillance of users as well a few things that can mitigate this for instance questioning the need for one single digital id for different services as against using multiple different ids to access different services um not centralizing authentication records and like we've already covered a data protection law that will regulate any potential surveillance one of the things uh, that uh i mean you you all have focused on throughout the project uh, of course was was data protection itself and and we heard how the advancements of the legal systems in data protection of uh, various countries definitely had some impact on on how that how the digital identity itself a project itself was was perceived um but uh, through your research you've also come up with a number of uh, of of principles um that should govern digital id or should govern good id that rely on principles of data protection of course but also on various other uh, principles of regulatory theory and constitutional law so could you explain for us uh, what some of these principles are and what was your methodology and thought process uh, when you all came up with these principles because they have been uh, i mean recognized world over for their uh, robustness and are a very holistic tool of evaluating uh, digital ids i mean of course the indian one but i think any id in the world if they can pass through those tests that's a very useful indicator of whether it falls under the bracket of of good id or whether there are other uh, things that need to that decision makers need to look at sure. um so when you we were looking at the research i was already that had that already exists about digital ids we noticed that there was a lot of 
talk about privacy principles etc but there was nothing that we found that was comprehensive or like unique for digital id programs and since the nature of these digital id programs are such that they have kind of really different applications so they are they are unique in that they have really important applications or they employ both private and public actors they involve a ton of governance through technology etc it's it's something that we found uh, was unique and needed a sort of comprehensive policy tailored towards it that is different from just privacy principles etc which was what our which was our goal behind coming up with the evaluation framework um so we believe that this framework has a set of tests that if policy makers were to meet they would be creating digital id programs that would meet their policy goals while also being privacy enabling limiting exclusion being minimally invasive etc so these are the according to us these uh, specifically target the risks and the problems involved in digital id programs and we aim for it to be comprehensive in in a way that sort of breaks down everything that you would need to look at while creating a digital id program uh yeah so we've divided the evaluation framework into um how they can ensure rule of law and uh, protect rights and mitigate risks so for example in our rule of law tests um i think the very first sort of fundamental test is basically any sort of di- digital id system requires a rule of law framework in order to prevent misuse of the system for sort of any purposes outside its intended scope and um so first there should be legislative mandate and that includes basically a law that has been passed by parliament and not for example any sort of executive order or any sort of notification that brings a digital id into being um particularly because um digital id just i mean by its very nature can potentially violate an individual's right to privacy and free speech any potential infringement of these rights um it needs to be sanctioned by a statutory law and it needs to be passed by the appropriate legislative body um not so once you have that law in place this law must also sort of uh, uh, this law must also be accessible to all persons who may be impacted impacted and this law must also be precise so this should minimize and sort of limit this uh, discretion and executive discretion and abuse as much as possible the um, the law must also have a legitimate aim and this aim should basically outline all the purposes for which the digital id has to correspond and um, all the potential actors within the digital id ecosystem and all the purposes that arise from this le- legitimate aim have to be clearly identified and not only that it must also clearly identify how this law applies both to state and private actors um then again regarding the issue of mission creep um you need we need to meet, mitigate it as much as possible by again clearly express purpose limitation and this purpose limitation needs to be backed by law and um this is in order to obviously prevent the executive authority for example from using the uh, digital id for unspecified purposes without any sort of proper legislative or judicial examination which is something that we have seen and um any sort of additional uses of the digital id should also require um fresh consent from users or at the very least some sort of legislative or judicial examination and uh, not only that the law must also be comprehensive enough to provide both ex ante and ex post accountability measures uh so yeah so besides that for the rights based test we basically the point was to ensure that 
um, ID holders as well as people who don't have the IDs have their rights ensured. So this includes uh, really key principles such as data minimization, which is basically that only the amount of data that is necessarily required to uh, complete the purpose is taken from citizens. And really important rights of access to the ID system itself, which is that citizens should be able to access the data they have there. They should be able to correct it and ensure the data quality, uh, etc. Because again, these have such important applications. If your data were to be wrong, if you were prevented from, uh, for example, if they found that your ID was wrong or that you weren't properly authenticated, you could miss out on key services. So a very important right is the right to be able to access data and ensure that they are correct. And uh, a very important right that also comes from the ID system is a, the right to not be excluded. So basically this would involve um, really important things like the ID not being ma made mandatory to access key functions or there being alternative means, uh, there being grievous, grievance redressal mechanisms, there, there should be liability for the administrator in case there has been an exclusion, etc. Um, and finally, a very important thing that we came across in ID systems itself is that of making the system mandate or, or making the ID mandatory. Uh, basically, this test involves this test involves allowing it to be made mandatory only if there is a proper reason behind it, because we recognize that this also leads to exclusionary impacts. Um, and the risk-based test, uh, the idea behind it was basically that we recognize that. Uh, even if the rule of law uh, is ensured and rights are guaranteed, etc., there is still a risk that arises from using an ID system. So, uh, the, so the risk-based tests are basically in addition to the other two to make sure that even after all of this is complied with, uh, policymakers ensure that the, uh, the system is as risk-mitigating as possible. So this involves things like having a risk assessment, identifying the risk that comes from the ID framework, which includes who, where the ID framework is vulnerable, and also who might be incentivized to, uh, in any way, violate or hack or, in any way, impact the security of the system. It involves having mitigation means. It involves having privacy by design. It involves having a very responsive. Uh, uh, sorry, it has involves having a very responsive administrator who can immediately respond to any sort of privacy harms that arise, etc. So these are basically the risk-based tests uh, that we hope will address the continued risk that exists even when all rights of ID holders are met. Yes, so this is pretty interesting. And also by looking at these principles, I was thinking about how these principles could, could be used or could have been used by looking at not just digital IDs, but also other IDs, the paper IDs that we had before the beginning of the digital line, like how we got yeah. a voter card or how we got a birth certificate, if all these principles were thought about before bringing these into the world. I think so while looking at the different principles where through which you are looking at digital ID systems in different countries, uh, do you think there are some which are somewhat ticks all the boxes, have most of the principles, if not exactly, but have thought about these principles or tried some way to actualize these principles? So I think digital IDs that are somewhat an example for other countries to set up their digital IDs. So, I mean, at least in our sort of research, from what we've seen, there are, I mean, none of the countries that we've seen tick off, I mean, all of the boxes, obviously, but even a lot of the boxes, I don't think there's any country that we've sort of come across. Every country that we've come across has many uh, sort of glaring uh, issues that, they, that remain unaddressed. 
So we've analyzed a couple of countries and a couple of use cases. And um, I think it just in general, like certain aspects stood out from what we've, um, like there are certain patterns that we sort of saw with all of these digital ID systems. So for example, I mean, like I think a big one is just the absence of a statutory framework. I think most of the countries that we've seen have had some sort of statutory framework before they sort of implemented a digital ID. I think India, obviously, with the Aadhaar pushed in like to 2009 and the Aadhaar Act coming seven years later is a sort of glaring exception to that. So another thing we noticed was in redressal mechanisms, for instance, uh, Estonia, because of having a data protection law and a data protection authority, has a much better redressal mechanism and even includes compensation for victims if their rights are violated. Um, in contrast, India, although has set up a redressal mechanism under the Aadhaar Act itself, it does not have a data protection law and therefore does not have a data protection authority and makes it, in all in all, it's a lot harder for victims to get any sort of grievance redressal from the system. Yeah, so just in terms of, um, for example, the, the um, digital ID regulators, um, in a country like Estonia, for example, it's quite a responsive regulator. For example, it has an emergency act, it has a cybersecurity act, and it's created a specific legal framework for responding to and managing risks. Whereas India, as we've seen with the UIDAI, does not have a particularly responsive regulator. In fact, in some cases, it's been quite obstructive and issues have arisen with Aadhaar. Yeah, and that would go to, uh, a, like, that is a good example of a risk-based mitigation strategy because... We recognize that immediately addressing risks in the ID system goes a long way in protecting the rights of citizens or, or ID holders. Uh, so that's a good example of a mitigation strategy that Estonia has managed to have. They have an emergency act, a cybersecurity act, all of which together result in sort of immediate responses and having a framework in place to respond to uh, any sort of problem with the ID system. Uh, some other things that we found were, for example, data minimization or purpose limitation, which is also a very important part of ID systems to ensure that the ID system has a specific purpose and has a mechanism in place to ensure that nothing outside that purpose is done. So, for example, uh, Kenya, and this came up in the court case um, in the High Court of Kenya, which was that they didn't, they don't have a purpose and therefore have not limited all of the ID actions, such as collecting data, to that purpose. And in fact, the court held that the purpose in um, their ID system was simply the identification of people, which basically is so broad that it is not a purpose. It, it allows um, the administrators to collect any sort of data, to do anything with it, to have it mandatory for any purpose. Um, in, in slight contrast, India has a defined purpose and to that extent has sort of... Uh, make sure they collect data or make mandatory only for those purposes. But again, we've noticed a trend where they don't really go on to implement that purpose. For example, uh, when the IT Act was amended to allow, to mandate citizens to connect their PAN card um, to their Aadhaar card, this also came up in court and the court simply held that this was outside the Aadhaar Act. It was a different um, act itself under which this was mandated and so they found no problem with it. It was harmonious according to them. So that also, in our opinion, goes outside the purpose limitation. Uh, but to the extent that they've defined a purpose, it seems to be better than um, the case in Kenya. Uh, so even when we're talking about, for example, the exclusionary impacts of digital IDs, um, in a lot of countries, what we've seen is that digital ID is just one form of many different forms of identification in order to authentic that allows you to authenticate your identity. 
but in a lot of other countries that we've seen, such as India, for example, Aadhaar has been made mandatory to identify yourself for um, certain purposes, which is how it includes, I mean, obviously excludes large sections of the population, especially when it comes to accessing government benefits and services. Uh, yeah, and another example would be privacy by design, which is also a key uh, risk-based factor. Uh, India has in recent times attempted to have privacy by design uh, methods in, in their virtual IDs and the tokens that they're sort of putting out. Uh, but another thing we would say here is that we stress in our framework that privacy by design is something that should ideally be accounted for when the ID program is in its initial stages, when they're coming up with an ID program is that is truly privacy enabling in every way. But in any case, privacy by design is definitely something that, uh, in fact, a lot of countries have complied with. So Estonia also, in the way they have their ID system itself, in the different databases, uh, etc., it does, to some extent, implement a privacy by design method. Even something like Canada, which has, uh, under their trust-based framework, they have different credential uh, suppliers, they have different identity providers, etc., and all of that is in itself a privacy by design way to, from the start, have a, a privacy enabling system in place. We, we do have longer case studies, sort of evaluating the regulatory and technical frameworks of all of these, uh, either countries or use cases, to see how they comply with the evaluation framework. So even some use cases exam uh, include healthcare and verification, etc., to see how digital IDs have been used by different countries in these sectors of healthcare and whether in that specific sector itself, they are also uh, complying with all of the tests that we have identified. Thank you, Isha and Shruti. And uh, I think the way this conversation is going, I know that there's so much more that needs to be discussed and so much more that needs to be unpacked about digital ID systems. And I think a good resource definitely would be the website, which we will link in the description. Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks. Yesha and Shruti, as, as I said at the beginning as well, it's it's been um, just tracking the work of the Digital ID project uh, from the outside. It's been fascinating to see the kind of work that, that the project has, has produced. And also, uh, as I mentioned at the outset as well, I think Digital ID is a term that we hear in the news often, but it's very important to unpack the nuances, the nuances of it. But I think ultimately what can be said of Digital ID and and, and Please feel free to correct me uh, if, if, if I'm wrong. But I think what can be said of digital ID can possibly also be said uh, is what is also said of other forms of technology, right? The implementation, the exclusion, the the potential regulatory concerns around a specific technology and therefore around the implementation of a specific digital ID is obviously contingent on the, the political, the economic, the, the legal and constitutional framework within which it is implemented. Therefore, there have been different experiences and different uh, both extent and kinds of pushback across countries. And I think that was the major takeaway from me, that digital ID, much like any other technology, is to a certain extent political. And I think that, uh, that that's the interdisciplinary approach that this uh, team has taken, I think, goes to underscore that, that the more consultation, the more open governments are to actually taking feedback on the devising of a digital ID project, the more successful and uh, inclusive it is likely likely to be. So as a sort of just someone who is not very well acquainted with the field just by hearing Yeshan Shuti talk, I think that is what the uh, one of the major takeaways that I am I am leaving here. Thanks. And that's the also the end, end of the season. So we won't be producing episodes for a while, but uh, we should be back 
with after taking feedback from everyone with a even better season hopefully in a few months over to you shweta thank you so much yesha shruti for coming on this episode and telling us a lot of things that we learned about digitality and there's a lot more to learn thank you all for listening and do follow the digitality team's work on the website This episode was produced by the folks at the Center for Internet and Society. Intro music Fish Attack by Alpha Hydrate. Outro music Palette de Will by Quickweed.